We are continuing our series on the fruit of the Spirit, and so let me invite you to turn with me once again to the fifth chapter of Galatians, and tonight we'll simply read verses 22 and 23. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, Father, as we look at this text again tonight and as we zero in on one piece of this fruit, give us grace, give us clarity of mind, eagerness of heart to hear what it is that you have to say and to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our own lives, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I told you last week about a cooler full of delicious peaches that was brought to us a few weeks back from our friends in Opelika, Alabama. Well, this past Sunday, we received another batch of them, this time from some local friends who brought them to us from a recent trip to Michigan. And today at lunch, I was eating one of those peaches, and the juice was dribbling down my chin, which is the sure sign of a good peach. And a puddle was beginning to form on the table in front of me, and I couldn't help but let out a little bit of a, woo, boy, this is a good peach. I couldn't help but comment aloud about the delectability of this fruit. It was a reaction of joy, earthly joy to be sure, but still joy. My reaction at the lunch table today was the overflow of my delight in this simple but lovely earthly pleasure, a fresh ripe peach. And maybe just repeating that delight to you can serve us as a little earthly thumbnail illustration tonight to get us started as we prepare to talk about the joy which comes from the Holy Spirit. Perhaps that joy of mine over the peach puts into our minds, if even only on a temporal scale, what it looks and feels and sounds like to rejoice in something. So last week, I used the peaches themselves as an illustration of the fruit of the Spirit, and tonight, my own reaction to a fresh ripe peach to illustrate the fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. As we think about joy tonight, I want to do it under four headings this evening, and the first is to give you a definition of joy, a definition of joy. Joy, And specifically what I mean is a definition of the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. A definition of the joy that Paul speaks of here as the fruit of the Spirit. Because there is a kind of joy that one can have on a certain level, even if one does not have the Holy Spirit. There is a kind of joy that an unbeliever can have, in other words. An unbeliever can rejoice in a fresh, ripe peach or the birth of a child, or the beauty of a sunset, or whatever it may be. And it's right for them to rejoice in those things. But when Paul speaks tonight of joy as the fruit of the Spirit, he's not simply referring to that basic gladness that all human beings have capacity for. He's speaking about a gladness that comes 
from God, a gladness that belongs uniquely to those who are born of and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is a joy that is granted or sometimes given new depth and height by the work of the Spirit of God in a person's life. It's a supernatural kind of joy that we're talking about tonight. A joy that, yes, still rejoices in that very same peach, but on a whole new level. And it's a joy that now rejoices in spiritual things as well, that now rejoices in the things of God. So what is this Spirit-given joy? Well, let me take a stab at a definition like this tonight. Joy... The joy that is the fruit of the Spirit, the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, is a delight in God and in His mercies that is sustainable even in trials. The joy that we're talking about tonight, the joy that is the fruit of the Spirit, is a delight in God and in His mercies that is sustainable even in trials. Now, there are four parts to that definition. The first, very simply, is that joy is delight. Joy is gladness. And again, I refer you to my whooping over that peach. Joy may not always issue in precisely that same sound, but joy is delight. Joy is gladness in the heart. And if the fruit of the Spirit is joy, then that means that God intends that we be glad, that we be delighted that we enjoy. More than anyone else in our generation, John Piper has drawn the church's attention to this truth, that God desires our joy, that God wants us to be glad in him. And it's a thoroughly biblical truth. And the fact that joy is listed here among other such Christian character traits as love and patience and self-control reminds us that God wants this fruit for us, joy, just as he wants the other fruits. God wants you to be self-controlled, yes, and he wants you to have joy. God wants you to be patient, and he wants you to have joy. And so the Westminster divines are on to something very important in their shorter catechism when they teach us that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And joy means delight, gladness. But then when we're talking about joy as the fruit of the Spirit, when we're talking about joy not just in a general sense, but thinking rather about the peculiar joy that belongs to those who are born of the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, then we have to go on to say that joy is a delight in God. Joy is a delight in God. The privilege of the Christian, the ability given to those born of and indwelt by the Holy Spirit is the capacity to enjoy God himself, to delight in God, to shout aloud over God, to whoop over God, to be able to refer to God in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 43, 4, when he speaks of God, my exceeding joy, God, my exceeding joy. Joy. God, says the psalmist, is my great joy. God himself is my joy. Not just the blessings that God gives, which are part of our definition and to which we will come, but in Psalm 43, 4, God himself is the joy 
Indeed, the exceeding joy. The fruit of the Spirit is the ability to delight in God himself, in God for God's sake, in whom God is. To be able to be glad in his various attributes, to delight in the fact that he is holy, that he is omniscient, that he is omnipotent, that he is omnipresent, that he is sovereign, that he is self-existent, and so on. To stand back and marvel at these things like a man might marvel at the sunset or like a boy might marvel at a woodpecker in the tree. Not because the sunset or the woodpecker are going to give him any tangible blessings, but just because they're amazing and they're beautiful and they captivate us, right? That's why we look at the sunset. And that's one way in which we should rejoice in God, just being captivated by his glory, by his splendor, by the beauty of his various attributes, to enjoy him simply for who he is, God, my exceeding joy. And I wonder how well we do that. I confess I'm not very good at this myself, meditating on God himself, not just enjoying his blessings, not just rejoicing in what he gives me but in whom he actually is but we need to do this we need to rejoice in God himself the fruit of the spirit is joy and it is a joy that has the capacity to delight in God himself to do so just for the glory of who he is But then our definition must go on to say that joy is a delight in God and in his mercies. Joy is a delight in God and in his mercies, in his blessings toward us, in other words, in his gifts to us. And we must add these mercies to our definition, not only because the Bible is replete with examples of rejoicing in God's mercies, but also because while it is true that we must delight in God himself, a great many of his attributes are known to us or they are known better by us because of how they overflow in his mercies toward us. In other words, while we can speak about delighting in God himself and then also about delighting in his mercies as two separate items, the reality is that they often so much overlap. And the reality is that the one serves the other. We see God's attributes very often through his mercies toward us. And when God grants us his mercies, they are always the overflow of his attributes. And so we shouldn't draw too hard a distinction tonight between joy in God and joy in his mercies or blessings. And certainly, let's not get ourselves tangled into knots such that we actually begin to have a hard time enjoying his blessings because we're worried that maybe we should be more focused on enjoying God himself. No, God often helps you to enjoy himself by granting you the blessings, by granting you the mercies. And so the key is not to try and enjoy God himself totally separate from his mercies, but to allow your enjoyment of his mercies to open your eyes also to enjoy the one who grants them. So to use the example again of a peach, the key is not to try and enjoy God instead of the peach or to enjoy God somehow separately from enjoying the peach, 
but rather to enjoy the peace as a peach, as a gift from God, and then also through the peach to recognize the goodness of God himself and to enjoy him for his goodness. We can go awry in the opposite direction, of course. We can enjoy the peach with no reference to God, no thanks toward him, no delight in him as the creator, the giver, the good God. But we mustn't swing the pendulum so far back the other way that we don't enjoy the peach itself for fear that we might not enjoy God with it. So our definition of joy must include not only delight in God himself, but also delight in his mercies. And as I say, the Bible is just filled with delight in God's mercies, with delight in his good gifts. I want to give you several instances of this, but let me put Psalm 92 verse 4 over them all as a summary statement of delighting in God's mercies. Psalm 92 4, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. Did you hear it? Yes, we delight in God, but Psalm 92 4, the psalmist says, You've made me glad by what you've done. I will sing for joy at the work of your hands. I will sing for joy over the things that you do and are doing and have done and will do. And many of those are his mercies toward us, his blessings toward us. I will delight, I will sing for joy over your mercies, over what your hands have done for me. And what have God's hands done for us? What are some of the mercies he's shown us? What are some of the acts of God over which we should rejoice? Well, let me point some of them out. In Job 38.7, we read of the angels rejoicing over God's creation. On that day when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Rejoicing over God's creation, over his laying the foundation of the earth, and we should rejoice in that as well. I hope you're able to do that as we sang a few moments ago. In Psalm 119, verse 111, the psalmist calls God's word the joy of my heart. Rejoicing in the creation, rejoicing in God's word. And certainly there is much written regarding joy over God's work, God's mercies in the giving to us of his son. Rejoicing over the gift of Jesus. Over Jesus, John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb for joy. The Magi rejoiced when they saw the star. The angels brought good news of great joy. To the shepherds concerning God's Son. John the Baptist rejoiced again in John 3 at the commencement of Jesus' earthly ministry. The crowds rejoiced in Jesus' miracles. The women rejoiced in his resurrection, and so did the disciples. The disciples rejoiced too upon his ascension in Luke 24. And there will be rejoicing when the Son of God comes again. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. We sing for joy over the creation of God, over the word of God, over God's mercy and the gift of his Son. And then if we're in Christ, we should also sing for joy over our own salvation, should we not? 
the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, after he heard the gospel and believed on Christ and was baptized, went on his way rejoicing. The Philippian jailer rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. And so you, Christian, must rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, Zephaniah 3. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. Or in a longer passage, listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God in his mercy has caused us to be born again, Peter says. He is preparing an imperishable and undefiled inheritance for us. He's protecting us by his power through faith for that inheritance. And then Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. When they came out of Egypt in Psalm 105, God brought forth his people with joy. When the decree was issued that the Jews could defend themselves from the foul plot hatched by Haman, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. And oh, should there ever be joy when we consider our own deliverance from sin by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then we should rejoice with the angels when we see other people being saved. This too is the mercy of God, isn't it? Still thinking about joy as a delight in God and in his mercies. We should rejoice when we see people come to Christ. Like Barnabas, who when he saw the Gentiles turning to Christ, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all. And unlike the older brother in Jesus' famous parable, who couldn't bear the thought of his 'er ne'er-do-well brother becoming whole again, being welcomed home. And if we should rejoice in the work of God and the saving of souls, then we should rejoice with Paul in Philippians 1.18 that the gospel is preached. That the gospel is preached, he rejoiced, even when it was preached from the wrong motives. And we should rejoice in the mercies of God also in the way they play out in people's lives in the faithfulness and fruitfulness of our fellow Christians. In Philippians, Paul rejoiced in the Philippians' participation in the gospel, chapter 1, and particularly in their generosity towards him and his missionary endeavors in chapter 4. In Colossians and Romans, Paul rejoices over those churches' discipline and obedience, respectively. It gives him joy. The Apostle John could write that he had no greater joy than this to hear of his children walking in the truth. Rejoicing in other believers walking in the truth, walking with God. And then we rejoice over answered prayer in John sixteen twenty four. We rejoice, I hope, like Jesus, in the joy set before us, Hebrews 12. We rejoice over fellowship with other believers, 2 Timothy 1, 2 John 12. All these things, God's creation, God's word, God's son, God's salvation, the good works, 
and fellowship of God's people, God's answers to prayer, God's heaven. All these things are his mercies and are therefore reasons for us to rejoice and to rejoice in God who gave them. So we're still in this first heading, a definition of joy. I know we're taking a long time on it. We're almost done, but we've said so far that joy is delight and that it is a delight in God and that it is a delight in his mercies. And now we wrap this definition by saying that joy is a delight in God and in his mercies that is sustainable even in trials. Joy is a delight in God and in his mercies that is sustainable even in trials. The joy that Paul speaks of in Galatians 5, the joy that comes from the Spirit, the joy that is from God, is a joy that need not be snuffed out in your life by cancer or by a dead-end job or by financial straits or by disappointment or whatever. We can be sorrowful, and it's not wrong to be sorrowful, But we can be sorrowful, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10, yet always rejoicing. Indeed, in the next chapter of 2 Corinthians, we find Paul writing as follows, I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. How does that work? How can we overflow with joy in all our affliction? How can we be always rejoicing even when we're sorrowful, when life is hard, when we're in so much pain. Well, we should say briefly that the idea is not that our joy will be so great that pain won't actually feel like pain. That's not true. The idea is not, well, if you're really joyful, then sorrow won't feel like sorrow. No, the sorrow and the rejoicing go together in 2 Corinthians 6. Sorrowful, yes, yet always rejoicing. So it's not that joy erases sorrow. What it is actually, brothers and sisters, is that sorrow cannot erase joy. Or at least sorrow does not have to erase your joy if you will trust in God. Sorrow and pain and trials need not erase joy in things other than and deeper than and beneath the sorrow and pain and trials. To return to the peach once more as an earthly illustration, you can have a broken leg or a bad back or a death in the family and still really enjoy the succulent sweetness of a fresh ripe peach, can't you? The, the difficulty and the joy can exist side by side. And how much more the sweetness of the things of God, which are far greater than the peach. They can exist side by side. Now, it's true, there can be suffering that for one reason or another takes away your ability to enjoy a peach. Chemotherapy might mess with your taste buds. Anxiety might take away your appetite. Your pain, physical pain, might be so great that eating is just no longer a pleasure for you. That can happen with a peach and with many other pleasures. But the pleasures of God in knowing God, drawing near to God, and knowing Christ, and being saved by Christ, and having a home in heaven, and having the fellowship of the saints, these kinds of pleasures 
and the capacity for enjoying them that is granted to us by the Holy Spirit are far greater than all merely earthly gifts and than our merely natural abilities to enjoy them. God and the mercies of God in Christ cannot be taken away. And if we are in Christ, the ability to rejoice in God and his mercies cannot be taken away. And so we always have reason to rejoice in Christ. We always have reason for delight in Christ. We always have reason to be glad in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit, that is joy, is a delight in God and in His mercies that is sustainable even in trials. We may be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Again, not to say that the joy erases the suffering or makes it not actually feel like suffering, but there is a way to be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Nor am I saying that joy may be expressed the same way in the midst of sorrow as when our circumstances are going the way we'd like them, but joy can still be and should still be very real for us in the midst of our trials. So that's the first heading, a definition of joy. Joy is a delight in God and in his mercies that is sustainable even in trials. And I hope you found that to be so in your life. I hope you found that you have this biblical Holy Spirit-given joy. Now we have to move more quickly through our remaining headings, the next of which is the cultivation of joy. So we gave a definition of joy. Now we think about the cultivation of joy. If you were here last week, you may remember that we spoke of how, yes, the fruit of the Spirit is indeed the Spirit's fruit. He is the one that produces these things in us, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. And we also saw that God uses means when he grows things. As in evangelism, so in sanctification. It is God who causes the growth, but there is planting and watering to be done on our end. The fruit of the Spirit is to be cultivated. We are to walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. And that is true, of course, with the fruit of the Spirit that is joy. The Spirit is the giver of this joy, and yet we have a responsibility for cultivating it too. We must water the plant. Indeed, we're commanded more than once in the New Testament to rejoice. Furthermore, David's lament in Psalm 51 over his sin shows us that joy can be temporarily lost, which only furthers the argument for its cultivation. So how is joy cultivated? A few answers from the scriptures. Joy is cultivated by nearness to God. Nearness to God. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Psalm 16. So you cultivate joy by nearness to God, by going into his presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. And then as a subset of cultivating joy by nearness to God, we draw near to God and thus we cultivate joy by spending time in his word. 
Psalm 119, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. We cultivate joy by nearness to God. We cultivate it by being in his word. And from that word, we cultivate joy by reviewing the gospel. By reviewing the incarnation and the life and the resurrection and the returning of Jesus that we spoke about a few minutes ago. And then rejoicing over those things with the Magi and with John the Baptist and with the crowds and with the women and with the disciples. And then also by reviewing and rejoicing over the good that was done for us at the cross. The most sorrowful event that ever was, but also the source of greatest rejoicing. And then we cultivate joy in the Lord by reviewing our own salvation stories, by re-going over our own coming to Christ, the way we sometimes re-go over that of the eunuch or the jailer in the book of Acts, and rejoicing that we have come to faith and going on our way, rejoicing having thought about what God has done in our life. And we cultivate joy by responding to God's word with faith when we read it. Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope... Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Joy and peace in believing. Taking God at his word lends itself to joy. And so also obedience and fruitfulness lend themselves to joy. For after explaining that he is the vine in John 15 and that we are the branches and that we can bear much fruit by abiding in him, i.e. by keeping his commandments, after saying all of that, Jesus then says this in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you, these things about abiding in me, obeying my commandments, and the fruit bearing that comes with that, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full as you abide in me and as you bear fruit. And then let me remind you from earlier that I briefly mentioned that one mercy of God that brings us joy is fellowship with other believers. I instanced 2 Timothy 1, and this is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 4, that he is longing to see Timothy so that he, Paul, may be filled with joy. And the Apostle John wrote to believers as follows in 2 John 12, Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. And so I just say to you, one strategy for cultivating joy is to spend time with the saints, to be with God's people face to face as you are when we fellowship tonight. And then there's joy to be cultivated, not only in being with other believers, but in serving them. The Apostle John explains why he's writing his first epistle as follows, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. 
So John's writing for the edification of these people that are reading this letter, and he says he's writing so that in edifying them, his own joy will be made complete. There is joy in serving the saints. And let me say also that there's joy in serving unbelievers too, especially as we serve them in the gospel. So then, how is joy cultivated? By drawing near to God. By spending time in his word, by rehearsing the good news of Jesus, by rehearsing how we came to embrace him ourselves, by believing what we read in God's word, by obeying what we read in that word, and thus producing fruit, by fellowshipping with other believers and serving other people. And before we leave this point about the cultivation of joy, let me also point out that we must not only cultivate our own joy, but we must cultivate the joy of others as well. Paul described himself and his ministry teammates like this to the Corinthians, we are workers with you for your joy. We are at work to cultivate your joy, in other words. So John serves these people to whom he's writing, and he gets joy out of it. And Paul says, we are serving you, and you get joy out of it. We are workers with you for your joy. So think these things out tonight. Am I cultivating my own joy? Am I doing the sorts of things that the Bible says make for joy? And am I doing them not only for myself, but for others? Am I cultivating this particular fruit of the Spirit? And if not, how might I begin? Or how might I improve? So we've thought about a definition of joy and the cultivation of joy. Now thirdly, very briefly, the expression of joy. The expression of joy. And here I just point out that the Bible contains numerous examples of and exhortations to shouting and singing for joy. Joy is expressed so often with the voice of song and sometimes with non-musical shouting too. And I hope you have a song in your heart or a hallelujah or a praise the Lord arising from joy in the Lord. And I hope that I do too. Because, you know, if I can, if I can whoop out loud over a peach, how much more should I open my lips to sing of God and of His Son? Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. The expression of joy. The cultivation of joy. A definition of joy. And then finally, before we finish, some illustrations of joy. Some examples of joy from the pages of the Bible. What does joy look like? Well, there was David bringing up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom and expressing the exuberant delight of joy by dancing before the Lord with all his might. Joy can look like that. Joy also looks like the prodigal's father, killing the fattened calf and throwing a party for the repentant sinner. For, he said, this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Joy looks like Paul and Silas languishing in that prison cell, cell, having been beaten with rods. And about midnight, 
praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Surely sorrowful and in pain, yet always rejoicing. What does joy look like? It looks like Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus, who endured present suffering by looking forward to the joy of the reward. And here is another of God's mercies in which we may and must delight. The joy set before us. The joy of the reward that enables us to get through the muddle and the suffering now. And then there's the joy of our Heavenly Father. Pictured for us in the father of the prodigal in Luke 15 and shown to us as well in Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Isn't it a delight to know? Doesn't it increase our joy to know that the God in whom we rejoice himself rejoices over us. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. 